Brackenridge. Uh, my name's Chris, and I'm the older version of Dave. Many of you probably don't know me, but yeah, I'm Dave's older brother and uh, my wife, three kids and I, we live here in Indonesia, where I'm sharing from. And um, our ministry is mainly uh, focused on teaching at a Bible college. We teach at a Bible college where there's about 700 students or so. And our hope is to see these students uh, be equipped and sent into ministry, sent into the harvest field. And anyway, it's great to be able to connect with you guys, albeit online. Uh, during this COVID period, we've had the chance to be able to join in various church services, you know, to see church services in Australia, including uh, at Bracken Ridge. And it's been a real pleasure for us to be able to join in some of the services that have happened at Bracken Ridge and just recently to watch the carols that happened there. Um, anyway, so it's great to be able uh, to connect with you online. Uh, this morning, Dave's asked me to share from God's Word about a passage uh, where we can see God's heart to see His people come to Him, God's salvation heart. And the one I've chosen is from Romans chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible, please open it with me. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. Uh, it's a big passage. I want to read it to you, and then uh, we'll go from there. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 15. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, this is a big passage and there's some uh, tricky bits in it. There's some bits that are really clear, I think, but some other bits that are really uh, tricky to understand. And I have quite possibly bitten off more than I can chew here. But what I want to do this morning, my plan is 
that we will reread this passage chunk by chunk and uh, stop and make sure that we're getting what's in a certain chunk and then go on to the next bit. And then I'm hoping that by the end we'll be able to see the big overall message that Paul's got here in these verses. So that's my plan for our time this morning. I hope that makes sense. Romans 10. Let's start again with verses 1 to 3. I think these three verses are fairly easy to understand. Brothers, my heart, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul's point here is that he loves, in verse 1, he loves his fellow Israelites. Like he longs to see them saved. He's praying for them. But he can see, verse 2 and 3, that at the moment they're relying on their own righteousness, which is not God's righteousness. They are zealous, zealous for God, but they're not zealous for the right reasons. They're not zealous. Their zeal is not based on truth. It's not based on true knowledge, which is just a picture of so many people in the world, including in Australia uh, and where we live, where there are people who think that they are already right in God's eyes. And particularly around here where we live, there are many people who could be categorized as zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on truth. It's not based on true knowledge. And I really like this text because um, I feel like a lot of the time it's easy to think of Paul as this theologian. And when we read his letters, it's kind of like a list. We can sometimes approach them as a list of all these doctrines and theology that we have to get straight and so on. But here we've got real insight into his heart. And verse one, we really see. His heart, he loves his fellow Jews and he longs for them to be saved. He prays for them. And when I read this, it gives me a kick up the backside to see if I've lost perspective. Because it's so easy, even over here, to get caught up in church ministry, good ministry, work and so forth. But we lose sight of the truth. I can lose sight. Perhaps you can lose sight of the truth that... There are many people, possibly friends, family, work colleagues, neighbors, etc., and nations around the world, millions of people who are depending on their own righteousness, which is a false righteousness, and who are not saved. They are not right before the Father right now. They are standing under his wrath. And Paul hasn't lost sight of that here. He, he hasn't let that truth be pushed to one so I want to share with you a, a personal story um, about this. I haven't actually told many people about this, but now it's going on the internet, so it's out there. Uh, one of my close friends over here, um, I think he could be categorized as someone who um, was zealous for God. Yeah, he would pray regularly and do what he thought was the right things, uh, but he wasn't a believer, right? He wasn't saved. He didn't have God's righteousness, if we use the, the vocabulary of, of verse 3 here. He wasn't saved. And anyway, I wanted to share the gospel with him, but I knew that it would be difficult and offensive 
um, I knew that it would affect our relationship. Like I, maybe I was being presumptuous, but certainly that's how I was feeling. It's really going to stuff up our relationship if I'm too pushy and so on. And what I did, if I'm honest, I pushed the necessity, the urgency of the gospel to one side. But anyway, one day I was um, praying for him and I really felt like, no, I've got to share the gospel. He's my friend. This is good news. So I sent him a text and I said, you know, next week, can we catch up for coffee? And he said, yeah, sure. Uh, we used to go out for coffee a lot. And um, anyway, about three, two or three days before we caught up for coffee, I'd been praying for him and looking forward to sharing the gospel with him. Anyway, just beforehand, a couple of days beforehand, I got a text message received news that he had been killed in an accident and he died instantly and um, the next day I was invited over to uh, his house by his family and they invited me in and um, and allowed me to sit next to his dead body just lying there and I looked down at my friend and I bawled my eyes out and as I was sitting there looking at him, I had all these different thoughts going through my mind and possibly the chief amongst them was, why didn't I share earlier? Why did I let this be pushed to one side? And I know that we can have conversations about predestination and, and election and all this kind of thing. But what I see in these verses is that Paul did not allow the urgency of the gospel, that truth, to be pushed to one side. And I don't want to let it be pushed to one side either. And perhaps this is a call for all of us this morning. Let's keep going with the text. Verse 4. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. I think the second half of this verse is pretty pretty clear so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes we might be pronounced right not guilty and right in the presence of God everyone who believes but the start of the verse Christ is the end of the law that's a, a text that has generated some some debate and confusion and so forth uh, the way I read it is Christ is the end of the law we should understand that in the sense that Christ is the goal of the law. It was pointing to him. The law was constantly showing humanity that we could not live up to its standards. Right? There, it was po constantly pointing to the, the truth that we need a savior. And it was also constantly pointing forward to who that savior would be there's this system of sacrifices for example pointing forward to the truth that the perfect sacrifice is coming there's this uh priesthood system which is pointing forward to the 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 true high priest who is coming who's going to represent us to the father perfectly and the father perfectly to us and so forth he's the fulfillment of the law he's the end of it the goal of it and because christ has perfectly fulfilled the law those who trust in him, those who believe, because of him, there may be righteousness. And this righteousness, notice, it is from God. Verse 3, we've already seen that. It's perfect righteousness. In fact, 
It's Christ's righteousness. If you go earlier on in chapter 4, that's kind of Paul's big argument in that chapter. Those who trust in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ is counted towards them. Now, hopefully we all know this, right? We know that when we trust in Jesus for salvation, when we rely on him, when we have saving faith, we are justified, pronounced not guilty in the sight of the Father. And Christ's righteousness is counted towards us. That's verse 4. But in verse 5, what we see is Paul contrasting this righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, with a different type of righteousness. Verse 5, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. Now, this is a, that's, that quote there, that's from Leviticus 18. And I think this verse can be somewhat confusing. Um, but in Galatians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul uses this verse from Gal uh, Leviticus 18 in that text as well. And I think that text is a little bit clearer in the sense in explaining how Paul understands that text from Leviticus 18. So let's very quickly see how Paul uses this text in Galatians 3. I'll read verses 11. Uh, sorry, verse, I'm in the wrong chapter, verse 11 and 12. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things, the same text as Romans 10, man who does these things will live by them. So Paul is saying in Galatians 3, that no one is justified by living according to the law, right? Because no one can live according to the law. So no one is declared righteous because of obedience to the law, which is the point here in verse 5 as well. Righteousness that comes from the law will in the end be no righteousness at all. Righteousness from God through faith, that is righteousness that lasts eternally. So, here's the point. If we could very uh, loosely, very loosely paraphrase the core points of verses 1 to 5 here, this is what I think uh, it, it would say. Verse 1, Paul is saying, I long to see my brothers come to the Lord, my fellow Israelites, brothers and sisters, come to the Lord. Verses 2 and 3, at the moment... They're not saved. They're relying on themselves. Their righteousness is of their own making. They're not righteous. Verse 4. Jesus came so that people could be righteous when they trust in him. And verse 5. The righteousness that comes from our obedience, from the law, from our obedience, is just not enough. It's not going to do the trick. So I hope you're still with me. Don't let your eyes glaze over. I'm trying to make sure that we get what's going on in this text. I think that's what's going on in verses 1 to 5. And then in the next big chunk, in verses 6 to 13, Paul explains what real righteousness is. The righteousness that comes from faith. First he says what it isn't. And then he says what it is. This is verses 6 and 7. I love these verses. I think they're awesome. But the righteousness that is by faith says, 
Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to go up there and bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into deep? That is, to go and bring Christ up from the dead. I just love these questions. Get what it's saying. Our faith, the faith we have that pronounces us righteous in the sight of the Father is not that someone needs to go into heaven and get the Christ, the Messiah, and bring him down. No, because he's already come. Like Christmas. We've just been celebrating this. And our faith is not that someone needs to go down into Hades and bring Jesus up from, or bring the Christ up, the Messiah up from the place of the dead to bring him back to life. No, that's already happened as well. Easter. That's not what our faith says. So verses 6 and 7, I love them. Uh, they're what our faith is not teaching. What the faith that leads to righteousness does not say. And then in verses uh, the, the next verses, we see what the faith that leads to righteousness does say. In other words, what is the core of our faith? What is the core of saving faith through which we are counted righteous in the presence of the Father? Verses 8 to 13. What does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. So this is the word of faith that Paul and the apostles are proclaiming. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So Paul's summary in this passage about the means to be saved is that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. Now, let's just make sure we get those two things. To confess, first one, to confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that other things or people aren't Lord. So in the Roman context, obviously, it's to confess that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. Or to perhaps closer to home for us, it's to confess Jesus is Lord, not me. I'm not the Lord. He is. He is my Lord. And number two, to believe that God raised him from the dead is to believe that, yes, it's of course to believe that Jesus lived and died and rose, but to believe that God rose him from the dead is to believe that the Father is satisfied with Jesus' life and ministry. We believe that Jesus' saving ministry is sufficient. It is finished. I am saved, forgiven, righteous. Like we believe this. Anyone who does this, anyone who confesses, who receives Jesus as Lord and Savior will be saved. Right? This is verses 8 to 10. Verse 11, Scripture says, Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And verse 12, this is true for everyone. Bracken Ridge mob, Indonesian mob, Australian mob, every mob. There is no difference between Jew and Greek, uh, Jew and Gentile, or Australian, uh, Indonesian. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses 
all who call on him. For, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, Paul explains the message of how we become righteous before God, how we are saved. But then, after that, the next thing he shows us is that there is a problem. Right? There is a problem with this saving message. Um, what is the problem? The problem is that at the moment, a lot of people don't know about it. Verse 14 and 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. These are pretty well-known verses. Uh, how can people confess that Jesus is Lord, believe in their hearts that God raised him when they haven't heard of him? The answer is they can't. A couple of years ago, uh, before this whole COVID thing started, I went to an animistic area in this country, on our islands, with some students uh, from here. And the people in this area have had zero contact with the gospel, like zero. These are people who are, um, they've got very little contact with the outside world. They wear loincloths and so on. And many of them didn't speak Indonesian, which made life quite difficult for ministry because we had to be interpreted and so forth. Um, anyway, we saw a lot of people during that time come to the Lord, which was just amazing. But that's a story for another time. But uh, one thing I remember from that trip was sitting with an older gentleman. He was the second in charge in that particular tribe. And anyway, I was sitting next to him and I said to him, so uh, tell me, what do you know about Jesus? And he said to me, Jesus I've never heard that name before. Who is he? Is he from the next tribe over? He and the people there had never once even heard of Jesus. They'd never had any contact with the gospel. These are people who are isolated linguistically, but who are also isolated geographically. I mean, just to get there, we had to travel two days from where we live by bus and then by four-wheel drive. And then we had to go hiking up a mountain for a day, crossing all these rivers and so forth. Like these are people who are just ridiculously isolated from the gospel. Um, in mission circles, sometimes we talk about unreached people groups, right? UPGs. And there are many UPGs. But there's also a smaller category within that, um, unengaged people groups, right? There are people groups, whole people groups, where as far as we know, no one is even trying to share the gospel. Like, how can these people be saved? And there are many of them. They can only be saved if someone preaches to them, if someone shares with them the gospel, the message of righteousness through faith. But the only way people are going to go and share that message with them is if they are sent, which is why we send people. 
So, Brackenridge, I know uh, a little bit from talking with Dave and websites and so forth, um, how you are supporting missions locally and internationally. And I've been encouraged hearing about it. And please know that your support of missions is so worth it. Prayer, finances, letters, visiting people on the field, sending packages, whatever it is, like it's worth it. We want to send people well. Um, but we, of course, don't have to go to these really remote places in order to find people uh, who don't understand the message of Jesus. In Australia, I reckon you'd probably have a hard time finding someone who's never heard of Jesus. Right? But there are lots of people who don't really understand the message of Jesus. Don't understand this verse 8 to 13 message of how we are saved and become righteous in the sight of the Father. You don't have to look far, far for people like that. You just got to look, a lot of the time, you just got to look next door. Sometimes um, within your own family, sometimes work colleagues, friends, and how will they know? Right? Paul's question here is how will they know if no one shares with them? And the implicit call for us is tell them. Right? They're not going to know unless someone tells them. Like, we have all been sent. Great commission. Go and make disciples. And so when we read and want to apply this text, this is not just a call for us to send others, even though it includes that. This is also a reminder that we have been sent with the greatest news ever. I hope you're still tracking with me. Anyway, that's the text. It finishes with a call to share the good news and send others to do the same. Now, when we look at a text like this, I always feel a little bit strange sharing from a passage like this, to be honest, because I've, I've sat through enough sermons to know that texts like this can sometimes come across as a, a giant guilt trip, essentially. Have you ever sat through those sermons where the, the preacher person up the front says something like, um, are you praying enough? And you're just like, oh, for pity's sake. Like, are you? <laughs> or, you know, is there still sin in your life? And it just comes across as this great giant guilt trip and everyone feels bad and it doesn't produce anything except guilt. And I don't want, I really don't want us to be reading this text as, are you sharing the gospel enough? Because we can all say no to that, right? We can all, I've already shared with you a time in my own life where um, I look back on that and go, ah! So please don't hear this as a call to feel guilty. Don't do that. Rather, let's see what Paul's argument is here. Verses 1, verse 1, Paul longs, longs to see his fellow countrymen Come to the Lord. 
Just the same as we long to see our friends, our family, our work colleagues, our neighbours and the nations hear the message of Jesus and respond in faith and repentance. Receive him as Lord and Saviour. We long for that. Verse 2 to 5. The reason why many Israelites are not saved is because they are relying on their own righteousness. Their own goodness, their own obedience, which is no righteousness. But verse 6 to 13. There is a true righteousness, Christ's righteousness. There is a message of salvation which is available for all people. So, verse 14 and 15, let's tell people about it. Paul presents to the church in Rome and to Brackenridge Baptist some questions. How can people responds to the message of Jesus unless they hear about it, right? Unless someone tells them. And no one's going to tell them if they're not sent. In other words, Paul's mind here is not, how can I guilt trip people? How can I guilt trip the church here into sharing the gospel? He's saying, I care about these people so much. And the only way they're going to be saved is through faith in Jesus. So let's send and let's share. This is not a call to be guilty. This is a call to be more and more involved in the greatest project there's ever been. Namely, God's plan to save his people. So, Brackenridge, let's keep getting involved in this. Let's personally, each of us, faithfully, clearly, humbly, courageously, prayerfully share the good news of Jesus. He has come Christmas and all who confess him as Lord and Savior will be saved. And let's do all that we can to send and support so that the nations may know God is good. And there is salvation, a righteousness before him that comes because of Jesus. Amen. Hopefully there's an amen there. Let's pray together. Father, during the Christmas period, it's um, we're often reminded about how Jesus came to earth and um, and your heart to see all nations come to you and we've been reminded of it again this morning father this text is so clear how will people know unless someone tells them and father we we want to be um, people who are tellers of the gospel father it's um, so very possible sometimes for our desire to share the gospel to be pushed to one side because uh, we're busy or we're scared or we feel um, that we can't do it or so many reasons we're given and father we want to pray that you would help us to be people who are um, not shying away not running away but taking the opportunities you give us to share 
the good news of Jesus. Help us, please, Father. And Father, we commit into your hands those people we know and we care about and we love who don't, ne- don't yet know you. Father, we pray that you would continue to work deeply in their hearts, please. Father, please do all that needs to be done so that there's a great unsettling and a desire, a new desire that's birthed that will only be satisfied through Jesus. We pray for this. We ask for this. And Father, we also pray that you would help us know best how we can be senders, how we can support and send others so that this news, good news of Jesus may be known right around the world and all people may know that you are a good God who saves his people through Jesus. Father, this is our prayer. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Brackenridge.